And some of my customers at farmer's market say, your chickens taste so much better than anyone else. And I'm like, I don't do anything special to them. They just run around free all day. They come in and roost at night and the door is open for them to come and go as they please. So I think having a happy chicken <laughs> makes a difference in their taste. Welcome to the Tangled Taproot, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I'm your co-host, John Cowan. I'm Kristen. And I'm Jackson. And this is a production of Milk and Hummus. What is Milk and Hummus? We make flavorful and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. In this episode, we talk with Rosalie Trung, gentlewoman farmer of Grand Army Farms. She operates in total around 90 acres, including 500-plus chickens, 60 geese, free-range ducks, 50 goats, rabbits, quail, and a number of other poultry, farm cats, and a dog. And what's interesting is she also has a unique background being a physician. So I wonder what the perspective would be like to be not only a farmer, but a physician as well. I imagine that background plays out in some sort of health and nutrition awareness, probably an idea of food as medicine. So I think she would be contributing some interesting passions to her farming just based on her medical background. Note that she's born and raised in Vietnam and also spent a lot of time growing up in France as well before her family came to the United States. So I think that's a major contributing factor um, and something that you don't see at Tower Grove Farmers Market. A lot of those farmers are born and raised here in the Midwest or from the United States, East Coast or West Coast. Yeah, and I, I love both Vietnamese and French cooking, so hopefully those influences are definitely at play with, with Rosalie's ingredients. All right, let me, let me pose a, a, a quick test for you. Go into your kitchen, open up your refrigerator door, pull out your eggs, what are you gonna see? I mean, if you're like me, you might, you might see some brown eggs, they're all the same size, same shape, color. But that might not be all the case when you go source locally. Yeah. I wonder what we'll uh, discover in this interview. 500 plus chickens, 60 geese, plenty of free-range ducks. Don't forget the quail. And do rabbits produce eggs? Only on Easter. <laughs> <laughs> but they're there as well. That sounds like a huge variety of egg sizes and colors. So join us as we interview Rosalie at Grand Army Farm. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me out. Would you be able to provide a little background about your yourself and, and this farm, the operations? Absolutely. Long story made short, I was born in Vietnam and we fled the war in 75. And then we actually went to France first. Uh, my parents are both physicians. And then after 1982, the political regime changed in France and that sent me to U.S. So that's how I ended up here. I've always loved animals since I was four. And then I really wanted to be a veterinarian. So I studied I came in ninth grade in Los Angeles, 1982. We eventually went to UC Davis. I did two years in animal science, and then my father convinced me to become a doctor. So I ended up becoming a doctor and went to Washington University Medical School in St. Louis, and that's how I ended up here. In the meantime, I've always loved animals, and it was always my dream to have a farm. And so by the time I reached 40, I wanted to 
be a gentleman, gentlewoman farmer. And we got our first farm. Uh, it's called a little farm now. And I uh, raised Angora rabbits to make wool and fiber and garments out of those. So what is Angora? Is that a, a breed or is that a location? So it's a type of animal that has long hair. For us, Angora fiber comes directly from Angora rabbits. And that's what I've raised for, my goodness, 34 years now. And then we are also have Angora cats. You know, they're Persian cats or Angora goats. So those have long hair, which I raised as well. So the operation started with a, a desire for producing textiles? Correct, right. And an, an Angora yarn, and it's something that, or Angora fiber, and, and it's something that you wanted to just produce fiber for others to, to use or yourself to use? or I think it was because I grew up in France for seven years. There, you know, they highly value things that are made from scratch. So I just love the idea of raising animal with my love of animals and then sharing them and then making something beautiful out of it. So that was the primary motivation. So being an artist, a textile fiber artist, that was your primary driver for, I guess, establishing a, a gentlewoman farm? Right, correct. And did you see yourself going beyond into what you are today? Not at the time, <laughs> but things evolved. And I think my life has been so shaken by politics and whatnot that I'm always kind of rolling with the punches. So, and in a good way, I welcome changes. And so it was very funny that one of my patients, she has a lot of contacts with chefs and she said, hey, Rosalie, you raise rabbits. Do you ever have meat rabbits for sale? And I'm like, well, I never thought about that, but you always have some excess animals. And so, yeah, I don't mind doing that. And that's from my animal science background that, you know, we always so look at productivity of animals and see how much wool you can harvest, how much meat you can harvest. So that's kind of got me into the rabbit hole of farm to table and starting out with providing rabbit meat, which is a different breed than they grow rabbits to local chefs. And rabbit, for most folks, is not a, a traditional dish that, that is familiar. Correct. It's something that maybe you see at a, a fancy restaurant, maybe a fancy chef restaurant, but nonetheless is a, you know, a unique offering that started to grow with in tandem to your fiber operation. How did that progress, that sort of parallel operation? Again, it, it's just how life happens sometimes. It just kind of comes. And so that patient introduced me to Kevin Nash of Sydney Street. And I get a phone call one day and he said, hey, can you provide, you know, 10 rabbits for us every week for the next year? I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess I can make that happen. And so that started that journey of, you know, providing rabbit meat for a demand. And he had a demand. And at the time, I think he did one of those farm-to-table dinner, and he wanted to feature rabbit as his main dish, and I was able to provide that for him consistently. And then he started carrying that in his restaurant as well. So it's not traditional, but he has a background that allows him to cook it really, really well. And in fact, that took him to his um, nomination as the um, Gem Spirit Award, wow. which he eventually won. So 520 rabbits requested by the <laughs> chef. Yeah. And you decide to embark on this journey. This journey. Yes. And knowing rabbits, did you have more than you needed? Did, were you able to? It was a challenge to match the chef's request. 
because I, I had at the time I heard of a hundred, but you know, I want to keep some for myself. And then I have to gather more from other local farmers to supply that kind of demand. But I'm very, I guess, goal-minded and I can make anything happen. So I did it. Well, sure. Yeah. So you said you, you grew up in Vietnam. Tell me about what the food culture or your inspiration was early on. Was, was, is that something that influences you today? Absolutely. So growing up, cooking is everything in many cultures. And it's sadly what I miss in U.S. culture. We don't cook together enough. And there is, you know, the whole family would cook because every meal that we made is made fresh. Uh, just to date myself, I was born in the 60s. So back then, the refrigeration in Vietnam just barely came along. And so everything, anything that you would cook, you'd have to gather that morning. And farmer's market starts there at 5 a.m., because it'd get hot, you know, by 11, so the market closes by 11. <laughs> so you have to gather your stuff early. So you would bring in the fresh fish that's still moving. I remember when I was four, they brought in a carp that was probably bigger than me. And they put it in a tub to keep it alive until dinner time. And it jumped up and almost ate my face, you know. <laughs> and um, so that's how fresh our food is. We value that so much. And there's a competition amongst families, like who does the best, you know, spring rolls or whatnot. And it's also the community around making food that all of us, the aunts and the nieces and nephew would gather together and work like a, a, a line <laughs> to make the food, you know, it, it's just there's you know, eight steps in making spring rolls, something like that. And so you can't do it as a single person. You have, you need help to do that. And there's a lot of camaraderie going on, a lot of bantering and a lot of social interaction that is centered around food. And that's wonderful. So a lot of community influences, familiar family influences, and then you would also cite uh, freshness of, of, of local ingredients were your primary influences early on. And then because of the war, Moving to France, what sort of changed in terms of your view on food and ingredients? Vietnam was a former colony of France, Indochina. And so we already had a lot of French influence in the Vietnamese cuisine, like the, the banh mi. It's a French baguette, and then we would stuff pork and then fresh cilantro and also pickled carrots in there. That's very traditional. And they have the pâté as a spread in there. So going to France was not that big of a step. We still did all these multi-steps to cook. So when I came to the States, baking a cake was just like you would open a box and mix it with one egg and some water and that's it. In France, you get all the ingredients, the eggs and the sugar and the flour, vanilla flavor, whatever else goes in there. You weigh the ingredients and then you're pregnant. So it's still like a stepwise fashion of gathering all the ingredients and doing that instead of having one mix and then you just mix and do it. So that did not change. And they also have a, a different course. They're very formal. So I, I will tell you a funny example. We were in France um, in June visiting my mother and we were just sitting outside a bistro and what were we eating? There was a certain dish and the maitre d did not like the way I was trying to share the dish. And I was putting it in the center, like family style, and he just put it back in front of me. So there's a certain formality in, in France, which is very funny, there's um, a rigidity, but they're very, very tradition-based, and I, I enjoy that as well. So things that I enjoyed in the 80s, I would come back, and they'll still be exactly the same. And that's what I love about that culture. 
Well, nowadays too, you, you have, let's say a, a high-end or fancy restaurant and you're often given uh, suggestions on how to eat the dish. So there might be some parallels there, but so coming to the States, you were given, I guess, a, a form of, of convenience, some would say, for uh, a cake in a box, minimal labor. I guess people would say you're saving time and it comes out very similar, actually identical every time. And so that's probably led to some of your own, your own background and in, in, in wanting to do something a little bit differently, turning, bringing your your influences from these two regions to the states, and so I understand you came to the states to to work as a the doctor or go to school to become to, to go into medicine, mm-hmm. and that became your 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 primary focus. Is that accurate? Right, it was initially. You know, I, I think we all have our journeys, and that's kind of led me to something else. Now that while I love taking care of people, it's just that kind of is phasing out of my life now. And I, I think there are other ways to taking care of people. So food is uh, medicine in many ways. And I think as a physician, you see things that have already happened because people didn't eat the right thing. You know, it's a lot of obesity in the Midwest, a lot of heart diseases, strokes. And a lot of it is sadly what people ate their whole lifetime. And I, I think that what I attempt to do at Grand Army Farm is then to provide wholesome food that people can eat that's not processed, that has the element of freshness of Vietnam, that you have to gather all the ingredients like in France and make a wholesome meal. And it's really not that difficult to do to be healthy. And it's just a habit that you have to kind of carry on the rest of your life. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's not really a diet. Sure. And while you were in school, I mean, they didn't necessarily, and of course, I don't have a, a medical degree, but I'm under the impression that nutrition wasn't a primary focus incorporated into curriculum. Right. right. And it, it's it's funny. So we probably have two classes in nutrition, one hour each, so two total hours over hundreds of hours of courses. It really didn't teach us anything. And there, there's so much now that I'm learning for interaction at a farmer's market, you know, the keto diets and all that stuff that works against what we were taught in medical school. And ironically, a lot of people come up to their doctor and say, what am I supposed to eat? How, you know, how am I supposed to, what is healthy? And obviously there's different ideas of what healthy is. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, a lot of people are becoming more educated either through their own intervention through trial and error. And also just there's so much more information available, both accurate and, and false. So it is pretty difficult even today to find something something that's really helpful for everyone. So it's sort of a trial and error process. But one of the main things that's pretty great is there is a richness to farmer's market ingredients. There's a richness to and benefit to having something locally produced. Tell me a little bit about your transition into products for for the table beyond rabbit so that the the next step was again it's this funny things that the chef when they see you can furnish them something consistently and that's really what they want same thing supermarket they say hey do you have any eggs (laughs) at the time i was not raising chickens but sure enough i got into chickens because there was a huge demand in the winter time which is the worst time for chickens lay eggs for fresh eggs so i started raising chickens and again it's always a supply and demand problem that I didn't have enough supply 
client that had a great demand. So I supplemented some of my offering with local, other local farmers and I often go out my way to, to find those other local eggs for the chefs. And they can tell the difference. If you do a poached egg, it has to be fresh. It's not going to do its poaching job if it's an old egg. So it's not going to gather correctly and whatnot. So that that's really important to me. And I think it's my French background has got the rigidity of like, you will do it this way. Like I have, you know, all my eggs, I wash them by hand every day and I grade them by USDA standards, how, how much they weigh and things like that. But I always make sure that they're super fresh for the, the chef. And so that's kind of one transition about the eggs to the chefs that wanted them for poached eggs. For those that don't know or are not aware, what what's the grading scale? It's by weight. So there's small, medium, large, extra large, all that stuff. And a large egg, which is the most common thing, is two ounces. So you go a quarter of an ounce up or down from there. So an extra large would be two and a quarter ounce per egg. And a jumbo is two and a half ounces. Okay. And then is there a special type of breed of chicken that you started or that you're continuing to, I guess, focus on? Well, I think that I try to have a mix of breeds. And that was my thing with animal science that what I learned is if you have biodiversity, unlike like a large chicken house in Georgia, they have 20,000 chickens. And if they have something like the avian flu, all of them the same breed are all going to die. And so my thing from the beginning was to have all like 20 different breeds. So if the avian flu comes, and it did, it's going to kill some chickens, but not all of them. And so it's almost a way of surviving or sustainability as well. So I, I have about 20 different breeds of chickens. Some lay larger eggs. They're more the production commercial type. Some are the colored eggs that I'm known for. It's the Americanas. Some are white eggs, you know, all different colors. And it's more fun. And I think that's part of my dyer's background. <laughs> I need to have all multicolored eggs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that considered a, I guess, what would be the analogy for a monoculture would be one crop of corn, but for different chicken breeds is that polyculture yeah. i mean is that, I, I don't know what you'd call it but right just, it's uh, they call it the biodiversity biodiversity right. yeah. okay so now that you have a growing meat industry you have a, a a wool or sorry not wool it is wool yeah you can say that oh yeah and, and gora fiber continuing to develop what would you say the next step was in your journey I think it's it's just how, you know, a challenge for everybody is how to make the farm profitable and sustainable, both mentally and monetarily. So it's all true. I clock myself and I work probably 114, 100 hours a day. And that means very little sleep and I can do it because of who I am. Not everyone can. <laughs> and so sometimes you have to take breaks for that. It's finding that balance of working hard, but yet resting enough in between that you know, allows the farm to be more sustainable. And, you know, one of the resources that we have that is lacking is uh, laborers. They're very difficult to find. I'm sure it's the same in all industries after sure. 2020. And for my own journey, it, it's about, you know, understanding myself that I am somewhat of a unicorn, that I work that hard all the time consistently, but not everyone is or does. And for me, it's, it's my journey of understanding that, you know, you can't take the livers for granted. You, you have to give them compassion and the freedom of doing their own things and have their own ideas. And, you know, it, it, it was a journey for me to understand that, to maintain the workers here. So Absolutely. Uh, COVID happened. It's still ongoing a couple of years back. How did that change 
your farm operations? I mean, how did that impact your business model? It's funny, as a small scale farmer, it, we actually had a great time <laughs> with COVID because sure. you saw the failure in the food chain that the meat production, all the butcher went down the drain and they have to waste all of these hogs or potato because they had no outlet. Whereas a small farm farmer, we were able to maintain all our neighborhoods and everybody around us in our local community without food. So our demand went way up and we couldn't keep up with it. So the community supply chain, you know, just it's tight by definition. This just helped solidify those relationships. So we did very well during COVID. <laughs> so That's good to know. That's good, yeah. And now it's it's kind of evolving. It's like, how do we go on from there? So the demand is less. But, you know, I think those relationships have been forged and will continue to happen. Well, right, because a lot of the restaurants had to shut down yes. or pivot to, to take out Correct. later on. But nonetheless, that's that would, I would assume, reduce your, your wholesale accounts. But in the meantime increase your, your retail? Correct. Right. So I supply, you know, 30 dozen eggs to Peacemaker at the time was 40 dozen eggs and it went from that to nothing. And I'm like, I had buckets of eggs that year in 2020. And all of a sudden the Pan Asia that I supply a few chicken eggs and they go, do you have the eggs? We need some. I'm like, I do. And I delivered, you know, 30 dozen. And the next day they have, do you have more? We're out. I'm like, what? <laughs> And so, so it, it was a complete transition from restaurant to supermarkets. And now it's kind of balancing out that the restaurants are coming back up. Supermarkets are going down again. So, so maybe the, the largest challenge was a labor obstacle or not even? Or did you already have established labor? I, I had established labor. And during COVID, a lot of people were not working. It was really after COVID that people did not want to go back to work. And so traditionally used to have a lot of high school students work and they no longer wanted to do farm work or young people. They I don't know what happened to them. They just went away. <laughs> they found other things. And then I think that's, you know, you have to build a community or a, a family of workers that want to work here. And that's by respecting them and having understanding and the compassion for it their situation so absolutely and i wonder if there are more programs now earlier on middle school high school that sort of foster that that interest in sustainable agriculture not that i'm aware of i haven't really reached out to the 4-Hers. a lot of the time if they're children of farmers they will stay on their farm and do their own thing that rather not go out so, and then for young people who don't know anything about farming, my challenge has been, it's like they come and they're like, oh my God, it's glamorous for about 15 minutes. And then it's hard work. Sure. <laughs> it's like yeah. a lot of young people in their twenties don't even know how to use a shovel or a pitchfork. And, you know, I'm like, wow. Well, it's crazy. My, uh, my cousins actually, when they were in middle school, they were a part of this unique school program where they would have chickens and they would actually butcher their own chickens. And I know that's the exception to the rule nowadays. Right. Yes. But it would be really interesting for children, even teenagers early on to understand that the meat or, or produce that they're getting at the grocery store, you know, how it is in their natural state. Right. And how it sort of transitions from an animal or a, or a vegetable and migrates through the supply chain and ends at your your table and sort of it just 
the appreciation, I would assume, would increase dramatically. Absolutely. And it, it's funny, I, I had um, this in 2021, we had a lot of RVers come to the farm for a farm's day. And one of the women, she had two daughters, they were eight and nine years old. And I said, I'm bushing chickens tomorrow. And I go, they, the mom said, can we watch or participate? And I'm like, do you really want to do this? <laughs> And she said, yes. And so, you know, they, they watched me, you know, slice the throat on the chicken. And they were so surprised how much blood there was. And, you know, I said, this is the most humane way to do this. And I was able to teach them, like, look, these chickens traveled like 500 yards to get here, not thousands of miles on the road in really cramped quarters. You, you've seen those chicken trucks that go along the highway and there's like a bunch of cloud of feathers following them. So they don't have that stress in their life. It's a minimal stress. It's done very quickly. And, you know, so I, I, I was so happy to be able to teach them that, but that it doesn't translate into teaching a generation of uh, young people. Right. I mean, right now we're, we're sitting down in, in a dining room table here and, and there's this large bay window where we could see chickens and ducks swimming in a, in a lake, scratching around at the earth. Well, you, have, you have geese, ducks, uh, and chickens all, all across here. This is considered your, this is the large site, farm site. What animals are on this site here? So these, we call this the big farm, it's, it's 84 acres as opposed to the small farm, it's only six acres. The big farm houses all the 500 plus chickens that I have in the lower barns. And what you see here are the 60 geese that are supposed to protect the chickens and <laughs> they have their own agenda. And then the ducks are somewhere swimming around the lake and they're all free ranging animals. I also have uh, 50 goats that are waiting to be fed on a right. The smaller farm houses, the angora rabbits and the meat rabbits and some quails over there as well. Do you get to you know the personalities of some of the animals on the farm? Oh, for sure. We have names for a few of them. We, we try not to name too many. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so the ghosts have, many of the ghosts have names. We have a, a duck, Sebastian. I don't think he's around today, but he ironically was raised by a goose, but he's very funny. So he's half goose and half duck. So geese mate for life, and he's got his wife, and that's uh, Mama Duck. But then they also are very, I don't know, let's say unfaithful because that's making him like a human, but, but he just goes around and has other parties with other females as well. So he's really half goose and half duck, but that's one of the animals. Your undergraduate and graduate degrees or, or uh, your doctorate was in microbiology, is that yes. correct? I guess, does any of that transfer over to what you see on your farm in terms of, let's say, soil or animal husbandry? I think it's it's the animal husbandry that challenges me the most. I don't think people realize that to produce 30 dozen eggs a week, every week for 52 weeks out a year, you have to have a continual evolution of chicks every few months. So you have to bring in the new guards and pick out the old guards. And it's, it's a constant evolution of that. And so you can do a spreadsheet and so when's the next cycle of chickens coming in. So there's that that goes from my animal husbandry. And with the Angora rabbits, I keep record in their wool production. So, you know, how much wool is, does one animal produce? Same thing with the dairy goats. I do them for myself, really. But, you, you know, you could weigh out the amount of milk that they produce as well. So to me, as a scientist, that's a lot of fun. That's data analysis. And that's always something fun to do. Absolutely. Milk from the goats. Is that a, 
a new product or is, is that something that's been? It's a newer product. I think my, uh, you know, how do I get into these things? Who knows? Sure. I love animals. Yeah. <laughs> that's the basis of that. Uh, one of my friends in Minnesota had a dairy goat and she said, you want to, you know, have her? I'm like, oh, sure. Why not? And so, you know, I got milk from her the first year and then the second year I'm starting to make my own yogurt. And I'm like, this is really easy and I'm loving this. And then by the third year, I start offering it to customers at the market and they love the, the raw milk. You can make yogurt and chev and all sorts of cheese with that. So, so it, it's not a, a big adventure. It's more for myself than anything else. Sure. So, yeah. And have you, just much like the rabbit or the egg, I guess, demand, is, is this something that, that restaurateurs or, or chefs are asking about or is it still sort of... It's an under-the-table menu. Yeah, sure, <laughs> It's sure. for people who know me. Okay. It's, uh, I, I had the chef at Peacemaker ask me for some, but that was for his own consumption. I don't think it's something I, I want to get into. It's just a lot of work. If you want to do it well, that's the only thing you can do. And, and you get no rest because you have to milk them all year round. Absolutely. Why the Midwest, would you say? Midwest. I came here because, uh, you know, Washington University was here. And that's really why. But it turns out it's a great heaven for agriculture. Land is cheaper than California, for example, and things in general are much more conducive to agriculture here. Primarily economic? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I read that you, I guess, were, were, were enthusiastic about is uh, you say that sensory experience, what you see, smell, taste, feel, and the sound of the ingredients is, helps shape the enjoyment of food. How does one transfer this experience into their own home or restaurant? Tough one. <laughs> that started out in Vietnam. That's what we were taught, that it, it, any food has to be presented in a way that stimulates all your five senses. It has to look good. It has to smell good. It has to even the sound of a crusty bread breaking affects the taste. You know that's a fresh bread. And then taste is a big deal, of course. I think for my clients who understand have a very busy life, I try to make things that are easy for them. I, I show them, you know, recipes on my website and I tell them how to cook a quail or a chicken. And a lot of things are, I, I've, because of my own busy life, I've learned shortcuts on how to do things faster than the traditional cooking. And so I, I think people can do that. So the Instant Pot has been revolutionary in that regards. I, I cook with pressure cooker since the 70s. You know, my mother taught me on that and there was no fear that oh, it's going to explode on you. <laughs> but an Instant Pot is the next step. And what I learned from that is it because I think of it as surround sound, it's around heat. A pressure cooker, the heat is only from the bottom. An Instant Pot is heat is all the way around. So the flavor coming from broth from that is unbelievable. It's just so good. And it, it takes half an hour to cook any great meal, you know, and that's why I'm trying to tell my customers. And having this French influence, I think a, a popular term is terroir. Would you say that that is imparted in the ingredients that you produce here on the farm? Yes, I, I would say yes to that question. And again, some of my customers at the farmer's market say, your chickens taste so much better than anyone else. And I'm like, I don't do anything special to them. They just run around free all day. They come in and roost at night and the door is open for them to come and go as they please. So I think having a happy chicken <laughs> makes a difference in their taste. I also forgot to mention my garlic. So this year I, I grew 60 pounds of garlic and we started six 50 foot long beds in addition to my 20 beds over here. 
And it's all made from the rabbit manure. So I used that as the best ingredient for growth, a great garlic bulb. And last year we sold out on our garlic and there was a demand for more. So I responded, <laughs> I cultivated more and I just love the idea of recycling, you know, my animal's manure and making a great product out of it. And there you have with the terroir that it has, I'm sure the taste, not a rabbit, but of this farm. Um, it's so unique and tastes amazing. Well, the, from, the, from what I've tasted, the garlic has been incredibly aromatic, peppery. And then if you cook it, it's very buttery, I would almost say, but it's uh, definitely unique and, and amazing. And you said that that is why one of the reasons I, I believe a chef bought your entire supply. Yes, it was funny. Sure. And why Why garlic? Well, garlic. I like garlic. Yeah, <laughs> so who doesn't? I, I think you have to grow things that you enjoy eating. Let's see, I, I don't grow a whole lot of bell peppers. It's not my favorite thing to do, but I grow a lot of beans because I can never get enough beans or hot peppers. And then garlic, I really enjoy that. So I never have enough of it. And it's it has medicinal uses as well. Good for your blood pressure. Right. But it's it's a crop that has a long storage, three to six months for the hardnecks. And I enjoy growing them. It takes very little effort. You the, the most effort is in the fall when you have to cultivate the land and add the manure and all that stuff. And then once it's in the ground, you just wait 240 days and then it comes out next June or July. And then that'd be a little burst of labor right there to get them out of the ground and dried up, ready to go. But it's, it's a nice crop to have. Doesn't require refrigeration. And you see yourself expanding upon the garlic or keeping the status quo? Is it something that... I think so. I have expanded this year. So with 60 pounds in the ground, you expect a five-fold increase. So that would be 300 pounds. 300 pounds of garlic. Fini <laughs> and so we'll finish, see how that goes. Bulb, yes, finished bulb. Yep. Amazing. Yep. So what would you say some of the challenges have been as a, a gentleman farmer as of uh, beyond COVID, I would say? I think labor remains a challenge to find great labor who have experience with farming, don't have any disillusionment about farming that when I first started, I was thinking, oh, wow, this is great. I'm running around my white skirt, bouncing in the wind and running in the field. And it really is like you end up, you know, standing in the cold in your boots knee-deep in manure and shoveling manure. <laughs> That's the reality of it. Having great staff is challenging. The weather, it's all, always, it's a challenge. It's its a plus and minus. So I love the intimacy that I get from kind of watching how the day go, how the weather is on a weekly, daily basis as to what I do for that particular day. Bracing for that big storm we had right before Christmas was a big deal. It's like, do I have every stock tank heater in place? Are all the animals okay? Do I have enough straw bedding, whatnot. And I love it and I hate it at the same time. It's, you know, when you think you have all your ducks in a row, pun intended, that they don't go in a row and your stock tank still freeze in spite of what you've done the day before or the hose froze because you forgot it on. And so that's just part of farming and, and you can't really blame yourself or it's, it's a lifestyle that I have chosen. And so I have to put up with that. But it means that I will have frozen eggs. And here I am feeding the chickens and they're taking a lot of labor and feed and they're not producing any eggs. So that that's the hardship of farming. Sadly, the a lot of the chefs would think, 
oh, you know, you must have 500 ducks in the freezer or in stock. I'm like, I don't. <laughs> I just process on a small scale, maybe 10 ducks in a day. And that's all I can physically do. And so that's that's a challenge for me to have the chefs understand that or for the chef who took all my garlic inventory. It's it's like, I don't have any more. This is it for the year, you know? And, and yes, I, I have to charge you this much because that's a sustainable price. So those are challenges of communication. And so I would put myself as a challenge being of three different cultures. It's communicating well and clearly with the chef, the customers, the laborers, and that you know, it's something I will always have to work on. So price, the economics, you know, inflation, some of the uh, the macroeconomic factors right now, does that still hit a small farm such as yours or are you shielded? It hits us even harder. The, the price of uh, chicken feed has gone up 30%, if not more. And I think that recently there was an article in the New York Times saying that the price of eggs have gone up 49%. I have increased my price. I feel badly about it. But, you know, you still have to have a very narrow profit margin with that. And that's very challenging. And this is particularly showing this, this year because of the avian flu took out some of my chickens as well. So you have less production and increased cost of production. That's been really, really tough. And so we're kind of trying to come out of that. So right now I hear this. Is this a, it's a duck with the tongue off to no, the side? No, that's a goose. Goose? <laughs> okay. Does the goose have a name? Tonga? Because <laughs> she's got a funny tongue. And now she won't be a candidate for butchering because she's kind of like she has a name now. Too much personality. Yeah, she she likes to guard all the chickens inside of there so much so that, um, I don't know, maybe last year she was wanting to be mated or who knows what, but she drowned about seven chickens. And I thought, okay, you cannot be in the chicken pen anymore, but you wow. can troll around it. What? <laughs> so. And what is the, this... That's a duck. That's a Muscovy duck. And those are good meat duck. Again, going back to my inability to butcher a lot of ducks, those were meant to be butchered before Christmas. I didn't get around to them. So. Well, it's a it's a beautiful bird with a red yes. surrounding the eye. And, uh-huh. It's and called a caronco. It's part of their anatomy. And a white neck with mm-hmm. uh, gray feathers. Yep. Quite remarkable. Yeah, so those are Muscovy ducks, and they, um, they're actually part of the goose family rather than a true duck, but they produce the most amount of breast meat. So you get one pound of breast per breast, and then there's the leg. So I'm not sure if we went over this, but how many, what would be the ratio of their, your different birds? You have about how many chickens and, and ducks? So about 500 chickens, 60 geese, 200 ducks. Going back to what we said earlier, you know, what's my plan after COVID? I, I think I'd like to increase the ducks. They, It's a very valued product for duck breasts or duck legs for comfy. And the duck eggs are very popular. So I think that will see an increase in that. And then I had quails for a while. I think that's going to disappear because they're, they're not as profitable as the, the quail feed price, like quadrupled. <laughs> it, it was, it, it's so much so that it's not sustainable anymore for me to raise them. So that, they, those may go away. Are they bob white quail or what's the right? These are called coturnics. So they're a Japanese breed and they're domesticated quails. They're called jumbo coturnics because they're the largest quails meat-wise you can get. So like a female would dress out almost half a pound, eight ounces, and they're good egg layers. And do you see a, a decent market for quail eggs? Only for the Vietnamese market. So I, I have a lot of, I supply AV 
Vietnamese market and they're asking for three dozen quail egg dozens a week. And then we also do the balut quail eggs with them. So that's a balut eggs. It's um, an egg that's half incubated through half its incubation period. And it's believed to be a healthy product and aphrodisiac sometimes, but it's um, in high demand. Out of all your ingredients, what would you say your, your favorite or most prized offering is, if you can pick one? <laughs> so many. Again, I, I think I'm going to go back to the garlic because I really, really enjoy garlic in all its forms. So there's roasted, you can stir fry with it, you can bake with it, you can do black garlic you can do so many things with the garlic oils. Gosh. The list continues. You mentioned your farm is biodynamic. Is mm-hmm. that, and what, what does that entail for the end ingredients, would you say, or, or the sustainability of the farm as a whole? Well, I think, you know, if you just did vegetable farming and conventional way, it's very draining on the earth. So you need to apply a lot of fertilizer, a lot of nitrates, which in some way can deplete the earth. And so for me... When I can create my own swell, it, it gives me a lot of pride in that. So the rabbits are little manure makers, so are the goats and everybody else. And fertility is not a problem at all <laughs> on this farm. So you can see in the far distance near the barn that big pile of compost there. That's from the goat and the, mostly from the goat. But that I use that straight into the beds. Uh, same thing with the rabbit manure we have. Also, no, you can see that there's a line of feedbacks along the fence mm-hmm. there. Those are all rabbit manure that we brought from a small farm over here and that are going to replenish the beds. You know, the swell eventually kind of decomposes over time. And now's a great time to dump more on top. And it's it's a continual evolution of adding more swell every year that I get for free. <laughs> the rabbit produced that and you know, we just make more of it. And garlic is loves rabbit manure. It, it creates enough opening in the swell that allows red worms to come in and burrow themselves and create even more air for their garlic bulbs to grow. So it's it's a perfect crop for me to have, given the rabbits that I have. Sure. So, so that's your biodynamic right there. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thanks again to Rosalie Trong of Grand Army Farm. You can find her products at the Tower Grove Farmer's Market. Also, the website is www.grandarmyfarm.com. And you can find her on social media, too. It'll be at Grand Army Farm. This is the Tangle Taproot, a production of Milk and Hummus. I'm John Cowan. I'm Kristen. And I'm Jackson. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and review us. Again, thank you so much for listening. Send us your thoughts to tangledtaproot at milkandhummus.com. We plan to answer questions and share feedback. Fantastic. Until next time. See you next time. Yeah, see you next time, guys. Mm-hmm.